Father, we need you. Oh, we need you. You don't need us, but we need you. Every hour, we need you. I ask that you would do a work within our hearts to acutely make us aware of that once again. As a nation, our need for you. I pray that you would um, bless today's sermon, that you would speak clearly. Father, that we would have hearts that want to receive, minds that can comprehend, eyes that can see, feet that want to run towards obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark. He's in here somewhere. I saw him somewhere. Snyder for preaching last week. Oh, he's in the, he's in the, he's in the lab. He's back there in the, in the studio. Thanks for serving back there, Mark. He let us, uh, he reminded us of the witnesses, right? The witness that pointed to Jesus um, last week. So what we've seen throughout the book of John is how John has emphasized the concern that Jesus has for our spiritual well-being far past our physical well-being. Have you guys recognized that yet? Now, he certainly healed an invalid, but Jesus has been more concerned with our spiritual well-being. And that's true today as well. Because what good is it to heal a man and him still go to hell, right? It's better to make sure that a man knows Jesus and is set free from sin and death, far past any physical healing. But let me take you through a few things where, where Jesus has emphasized, where Jesus has emphasized the inner person, the inner being. The cleansing of the temple, you guys remember that, don't you? Jesus comes in and he fashions a whip and he flips tables and he kicks people out of the temple. Why did he do that? Because he was concerned with the inner person. He recognized that, that within the flesh of man and woman, that, that they were pursuing their physical gain rather than spiritual gain. And what was the temple created for? To be a house of God, to be a house of worship, to be a house of the presence of God. So what does he do? He says, I recognize that you're not doing what's appropriate with your inner man, so I'm going to wake you up a little bit. And then he goes to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a man who's very educated, very wise, um, knows the Torah. He was a Pharisee. And Nicodemus comes to him and he could probably out-talk anyone in Scripture other than Jesus. So he comes to him and he presents his case. And Jesus, being concerned about his inner man, says what? To be born again or to be saved, you must be born again to go to heaven. So Jesus wasn't concerned about who he was, what position he held. He said, if you want to be set free forever then you must be born again. Hard conversations, aren't they? Hard, hard, hard conversations. 
Then Jesus confronts a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. In her sin, remember, you guys should remember the story. It was just like 10 weeks ago when we were just a couple chapters ago. So the woman at the well, right? Samaritans don't talk with Jews. Jesus, the Jew, comes up to her and he still talks to her. And um, he says to her, hey, um, you know, essentially, go, go, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know you've had five. Jesus wasn't afraid to confront her. You've had five husbands. And um, the one you're living with now is not your husband. So why was Jesus sharing that? Was he sharing it to be a jerk? No, he was sharing it to get to her spiritual well-being. To help reveal that he is the Messiah. And then guess what he does? He provides her with the opportunity to receive the living water. Jesus didn't say, hey, let me heal you of your... Um, let me make you popular. Let me give you all the resources so you never have to come here again. What did Jesus say? He said, let me give you living water that will quench the thirst that you have forever. See, because within all of us, the thirst that we have isn't cars or clothes or popularity because all those things pale in comparison to what God has to offer. The real quench or the real thirst that we all have can only be quenched by the blood and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Jesus we still see is concerned about the inner being of the person. And then you're like, but Joey, he healed the invalid. He did. Praise God. He healed him. But guess what he also did? He came back to the invalid and he said, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Jesus is now taking him from an experience, and now he's discipling him, right, immediately to be a bigger man. So it wasn't, I heal you and I leave you there. Jesus was concerned about the inner person. So we too have to do that. But what we realize is this, is there's, there's, a, there's a conflict that all Christians deal with today. Many of us are dealing with this conflict today. And how about this? Our church has been dealing with this conflict. See, why James was so hard for many of us, and why when we say go out and evangelize is so hard, or go out and share the good news of Jesus with your family at Thanksgiving is so hard, is because we wrestle with two powers, God and the enemy. But then really what it comes down to is what we want versus what God wants. That's what it comes down to. See, what we want is we want everything to go our way. We want to know um, that we will always be safe. We want to never face any problems. We want to have our own independence and to be left alone and to have peace. 
I mean, you see that today. Someone comes knocking on your door, and you're like, should we answer it? That's Mark Miller. <laughs> so then you know you don't want to go to the front window because Mark might see you. So you go upstairs, right? And you look down to see that it's him. Why? Because what's happening is, is our hearts are being revealed to us that we only want what we want. We deal with self-pride and individualistic attitudes. We just want to be left alone, and that's what we want. Now, God wants something completely different for us, doesn't he? And that's where the conflict is. I want this, I want that, and now God wants something different. And when God wants something different, then he's taking something from me that I don't like. Can I get a witness? He wants us to solely trust him with everything in spite of what happens. Could you imagine? I mean, he's been training us since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, hey, just don't eat from this one tree. Trust me. We couldn't trust one tree. But that's what he's been asking us since the beginning. Just trust me. He wants us to know that a Jesus is preparing a place right now for believers to live in forever. That's what he wants us to know. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is preparing a place for you and I right now. There's something to look forward to on the next side. He wants us to walk in community rather than being private. He wants us to be connected as a body. You know what's always been interesting to me is um, people have come up to me and said, I hate that person, or I can't stand that person, or, and they're both Christians, right? Or I won't ever forgive that person. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen when you go to heaven? Like, heaven doesn't change who you are. We get to carry our spirits with us when we go to heaven. So, so tell me a little bit, more, little bit more about that. Well, essentially what I'm getting to is um, God wants us to be connected, walking in fellowship all the time with other believers. We're not to just hang out with those who are easy to hang out with. You know, you start to form cliques in the church. And I'll just pick on one because I'm sure they'll forgive me. This clique right here, Dillinger and Dave. They have a bro. Dillinger and Dave have a bromance going on. Dillinger, you don't see what he's doing behind your back, so. Right? We, we start to form these cliques and it becomes really comfortable to hang out with one another. You guys sit with each other because it feels comfortable, because you enjoy one another, because it's easy, right? That's not true. <laughs> we start to form these packs 
because it's easy. And that's what we want to do, is we want to be comfortable, so we do that. But Christ says, no, I want fellowship for everyone. And he says, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism to the poor. Don't show favoritism to the rich. Love everyone. He wants us to be connected. And you know what he wants to do? Is Jesus, God, wants to give us purpose over comfort. Are you guys okay with that? Jesus wants to give you purpose over comfort. And you know what that does? That creates conflict, doesn't it? Doesn't purpose create conflict? Purpose doesn't come easy. It will require those who want to be comfortable to be put in positions that they normally wouldn't want to get into. Amen? I want to explain something. I want to explain just a scenario that um, purpose, I want my life to be purposeful. So as they wrestle through still some of my health things that are going on, um, yeah, so the wrestling through that, I've been having kidney stones for several years. So I had another kidney stone appointment with my urologist on Thursday. And I'm going to make, I don't want to create a bad scene, but let's just say I'm in a very vulnerable position. You guys assume whatever you wish. <laughs> a position that no man or woman ever enjoys, unless there's a problem with you. So while I'm here, right, while Doc's talking to me and pushing and poking and prodding, he says, oh, by the way, what do you do for a living? Like, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. He says, well, what kind of pastor? What kind of denomination or what do you believe? I'm a Christian. And he says, well, I'm a Jew. And uh, I said, oh, really? I said, we were just talking about you guys a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so I can't even make this up. We were. And he said, okay, well, tell me more. I said, well, it's just really interesting to me because in my faith, and it's not only my faith, but in, in the one true faith, what I, what I believe is that it's all about Jesus, that he died on the cross, that he uh, rose from the grave three days later, that he was born of virgin birth, and that he is the only way to heaven. And it's not by our works, and then he cut me off, and he said, it's by your deeds. That's not how that goes, buddy. I'm like, you're a doctor, and you, t you told me the same thing. You sound like me preaching. It's not by your works, church. It's by your deeds. They're saying the same thing. I'm getting poked and prodded and pushed on and uncomfortable. And I say, now, hold on. That's not, that's not what I believe. That's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is, is it's not about works. It's about faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's it. And I said, so to me, what's really interesting is as I briefly studied the Jewish culture, it doesn't make sense to me that I can use my refrigerator on Sabbath 
if I unscrew the light bulb or turn off the fan? And I said, it doesn't make sense to me that I have to have a Sabbath cooker because I'm still doing the same things. What does the fan and the light have to do with it? And then, you know, he somewhat avoided that. And he said, you know, there's elevators in New York that are um, Jewish elevators and they open on every floor. I didn't know that. Interesting. So then um, he said, I think we all serve the same God. I said, what do you mean? This is my doctor. In a very vulnerable position in my life. You want to be friends with this dude, right? What do you mean by that, doc? He says, well, we all serve the same God. You know, Jesus, I don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. He said, I believe Jesus played an important role, but he wasn't the Messiah. He said, I don't, I don't even believe that he was the Son of God. And he said, you know, I just think everyone serves the same God based upon their religion. And now it gets even more uncomfortable for me. Can you imagine? How can it get more uncomfortable than this? Come on, somebody. It doesn't. I was already in an uncomfortable position. I guess pun intended. But now you start talking about Christ. Now you start talking and opposing another person who's poking and prodding on you. And then you disagree with him. So I say, I completely disagree with you. Everything doesn't lead to Christ and everything doesn't lead to heaven. There's one way. And then he walks out the room. I guess I said something wrong, didn't I? See, having purpose isn't always comfortable. If you want your life to matter, and if you want to have purpose, we must be willing to be uncomfortable. Right? I can't imagine a much more uncomfortable position I'll be in this year, physically and spiritually. Purpose doesn't come easy. So he comes back into the room, looks me in the eye and says, God bless you. And I said, have a blessed day, sir. See, it means that if we want to live a life full of purpose, we will have to go into the world that is extremely prideful and show them what it means to sacrificially live unto God. Do you think I wanted to have that conversation that day? No. Do you think that conversation came easy to me? Not at all. But did God put it on my heart to talk to him? He did. God cares more about a life that has purpose than he does a life that is simply comfortable. So why is it that out of our mouth we say, God, I want more of you. Out of our mouth we say, God, I need you. But then in our actions we say, I want to be comfortable. I want to be comfortable. 
We fight for that. And that's where we wrestle within the church as we go through the book, as we went through James and Acts, as we go through John, as we get encouraged and spurred on to do the work of the saints. What we're towing is purpose or being comfortable. And as someone once said, if you put your foot on a boat and you put your other foot on the dock, what's going to happen? You're going to fall. You got to choose one. You have to choose purpose or you have to choose being comfortable. Amen? This is the pressure that we've been facing throughout the past year the tension of what God wants from us versus what we want to do to feel comfortable. Has anyone felt that pressure? As as we preach as a church God's word, have we felt that pressure? Have you gone home and you've pointed a finger at whoever was preaching, which was likely me, and you've said to yourself, he's telling me something that I don't like? Come on, somebody. Somebody has. And then I would say, if that's true, I would love to meet with you. And I'd love to answer more questions. Not even being patronizing. I would love to answer more questions. And I'd love to dive into the scriptures with you one-on-one or in a group and say, this is what the scriptures say. Please do that. Please set something up with me. Just don't have a conversation with your friend and complain. Just come talk. Because if I'm in error, I also want to be accountable. Jesus has revealed this pressure multiple times that that we're talking about right now. And then he asks those who learn about this tension to agree with God. Just agree with God. Nicodemus, look, you're going to have to forsake everything. You're going to have to give your life to Christ. You're going to have to be born again. Don't pursue yourself, Nicodemus. Don't pursue the world. Agree with God. What God wants us to do today is to agree with God. So, John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. How interesting. Why were people following Jesus? A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So there was this intrigue about him because of the power that he was um, walking in. They loved seeing miracles. I hope that, um, that as, as a global church, we move past just miracles being the first thing that calls us to follow Jesus. We're not biblically, we're not biblically illiterate here in the States. Now, some of us are. Just plain and simple, even some of us in this room have never read the whole Bible, and there's no condemnation for that. I want to encourage you to do that because the Word of God is the living Word of God, and it's the truth that sets us free. And as we read the living Word, it will set us free. 
But we know, we've been taught and we've heard that Jesus is the only way and that we've put our faith in him that we can have eternal life. We've heard that. But right now we have a generation who just wants to pursue Jesus for miracles. To see, to see the power of God at work. And this week and next week, we're going to, you know, next week we're going to talk a little, little bit more about that. Either way, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? <laughs> Interesting question for Jesus to ask. He's asking a question because he already knows the answer. He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It will take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. What an interesting question. Philip, where shall we buy the bread for these people to eat? Have you guys ever set up someone with a leading question? To me, this feels like a leading question by Jesus. Now, why would Jesus ask Philip a leading question? Because he want, he's concerned about Philip's heart. He's concerned about that inner man that we were talking about 25 minutes ago. He's more concerned with Philip's spirit than he is Philip's well-being. Quite frankly, um, these, they were out in the middle of nowhere, in the mountains. There's 5,000, what, what Scripture would say, 5,000 men have come their way. So you've heard it all before. So 5,000 men, because they didn't count women and children. So they're saying it could have been anywhere from 10 to maybe 18,000 people that were following Jesus. Could you imagine that crowd following him around? So the scripture says that there was a test. Do you realize that God tests us? There's a testing that happens within our life. And you say, wait a second. I thought scripture said God wouldn't tempt us. God won't tempt us. But God will test us. And there's a difference between tempting and testing. God tests us. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So God puts before them the opportunity to choose, to pick what's right, to test them. And you say, but why would God do that? We're going to get there here, here in just a, a second. But God does tempt us. Sorry, God doesn't tempt us. You guys awake? <laughs> you know, one time with youth group, I, I preached out of a made-up book for the first 10 minutes. Just made up a book in my mind. Ended in some kind of like ock, like terabach. The book of Terabach. 
chapter 17, verse 3. Thou shalt doeth whatever they want as long as they bow down before the King of Christ and wish unto Him their greatest pleasures. So I preached out of it for 10 minutes and no one ever said anything. I was just an heir and y'all just let me be an heir. Wake up. Come on, somebody. God doesn't tempt us. James 1.13 when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. So what is the difference between testing and tempting? Temptation comes from within you. Temptation comes from within me. Look. You could come in here and put, you know, a lot of sushi over here, like five gallons of sushi, just best sushi in the world. I'm not going to be tempted at all. I never had it. I'm just kind of afraid to try it. I'm not going to be tempted at all. You put some pizza and some ice cream over here. I tell you what, I'm going to find a way to get that into the sermon with some kind of illustration. Taste and see that the Lord is good, church. I will be so tempted by the smell of the pepperoni and the cheese and maybe the bacon. Who knows what it'll be? Who would be tempted by the sushi? Pray for him. Pray for her. Temptation only comes by a desire from within. Right? Testing comes from God and hope that the test taker will pass the test. And when we pass the test, our heart is revealed. When we fail the test, our heart is revealed. When God tests us, it exposes our heart to us, he already knows, right? But the test exposes our heart to us and the people around us. To reveal the true understanding to the subject. So Philip had been following Jesus for some time. He saw miracles, heard of Jesus' power, and walked with him. So what was Jesus doing here? He was revealing Philip's heart. Did this mean that Philip wasn't saved? Because he says, look, where can we get it from? It doesn't mean that Philip wasn't saved. He said, look, it's going to take like three quarters of a year, two thirds of a year salary to buy all this bread. Why is it that a man that had been following Jesus for some time, a man who has seen the power of Jesus up close, Missed it. Philip completely missed it, didn't he? He said, let's see if there's any Schuler's Bakeries. Let's see if there's any Tim Hortons. Let's go to Kroger, Aldi, and Walmart and see what they got. Well, look, when people wait on food, they get even more hangry, don't they? 
So they didn't even have enough disciples to run or go to all the bakeries around to get all the food in time. So Jesus wasn't really saying, hey, we need to go buy some food. Philip missed it. What did he miss? Um, he said, we don't, we don't have enough money for this, Father. He missed that Jesus could do anything that he wanted. Right? Why is it that just a couple weeks before, a couple months before, you saw all these miracles, but yet now we find ourselves in a position to need a miracle and you tell me to use physical resources? Philip thought practically, like many Christians do. And it was revealed that he was still missing who Jesus really was. Imagine trying to literally figure out how to feed these thousands of people. So does this mean that Philip wasn't saved? No. What it meant was is that God was revealing to him through this test that there's so much more that Philip gets to become aware of about who God is. Amen? Through our tests and through our trials and through our temptations, we get to discover how big the one true God is. Because now they're in a situation that a miracle needs to happen. It was impossible to feed this many people. And here's what I want to tell you. The hand of God always moves outside of the practical things of man. So if you want to see God this week, then take a step of faith in the impractical things that come your way. The hand of God always moves outside of the practical things. If we want to see the hand of God move this week, we have to move past practical things. Verse 8. Another one, sorry, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is the boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will we go? Um, how far will this go among so many, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place. And so they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Man, I used to destroy CeCe's Pizza. As much as I wanted. Some of my friends went in there and back in high school. And we wanted to see who could eat the most slices of pizza. Joel, Joey, and Justin. Triple J. We each had about 48 slices of pizza. I guess I'm catch it's catching up to me. 14 years ago. I still maintain my weight. I look at a toaster strudel now, and that's a pound. As much as they wanted. 
Peter, bring me some more. Went out to uh, lunch with Ron White and Stu. You know what Ron White wanted? He wanted the chicken, and he wanted it to be um, all you can eat. Boy, he was, he was making Fantasia just do some work, right? All you can eat. All you can eat in an abundance that Christ brings. Either way, Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all, sorry, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that were left over. Let nothing be wasted. Simple side note, this reveals God's heart towards us as well. He wants nothing to be wasted and he wants none to be perished. He wants none to perish. Right? Verse 13. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The discipleship goes, or the disciples, again, practically thinking, um, are missing it again. How are we going to feed these people? How, how can a few, few loaves and a couple fish feed 15,000 people? You can't. It's not going to happen. Now, I want to make sure that this verse that I present next is within context and what Jesus is referencing here is salvation but it also goes um, it's intertwined with many things but Luke 18 27 says what is possible with man is possible with God now that's referencing salvation what is impossible with man is possible with God likewise that's still true for anything Jesus wants to do. It's still possible for him today. So in this situation, what was impossible for man, they can't feed the 5,000 men and women and children. So 15,000, they can't feed it. It's impossible. But with God, anything is possible. Now, what I said earlier is that Jesus is less concerned about our physical well-being than he is with our spiritual well-being, right? But what I said is he's less concerned. So why did Jesus feed the 15,000 people? Well, he fed them because he cares about them. And he does care about our physical being. But he cares far less about our, our physical health than he does our spiritual health. Amen? So, why did he feed the thousands of people? They'd been following him, and it's understood that they were hungry. I'll tell you what, you don't get a crowd if they're hungry. I can start to see y'all eyes just fall asleep at about 11.30. And I just see this halo over your head of like a chicken burrito or something. I'm like, they're dreaming. I see the sheep jumping over your heads. So you lose a crowd if they're hungry. Someone's in here like, man, he's preaching to me this morning. But in spite of their hunger, Jesus still had compassion on them. 
He wanted to make sure that their physical needs were met. And I believe that Jesus today still wants to make sure that our physical needs are met. Now, the way that he perceives physical needs being met in the way that we desire is also a different story. So God cares about our physical condition. Now, again, you may be saying, earlier you said he didn't. That's not what I said. When we look throughout the book, or sorry, when we look throughout the Bible, we see Jesus telling us to look out for the orphans and the widows. Right? Why does he say that? Because there's, there's a need, a physical need, a spiritual need, a protection need that the orphans and widows have to, uh, have to have. So if he didn't care about our physical well-being, why would he tell us to look out for the orphans and the widows? He also says, where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was thirsty? Where were you when I was sick? Where were you when I was in jail? He says, if you, if you have two coats and a brother needs one, give one away. So God deeply cares about the physical well-being of his sons and daughters. But what scripture tells us is he's more concerned about our spiritual well-being than our physical condition. Amen? God desires to partner with his people, is what we see in this scripture. Why did Jesus take the five loaves and the two fish? You ever ask that self, yourself that question? Why did he do it? God, Philip's mistake, the disciples' mistake here was this is, God, you don't need anything. Jesus, you don't need anything. Why did, why did Jesus take it? Why does Jesus take things from us? He didn't need it. He, look, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it into existence. Why did he need the loaves and the fish. He didn't. Why did he take them then? Because God chooses to partner with us in his plan for his world. If we would understand God's desire to partner with us and the immense partnership and love that he wants us to walk in, instead of it being this is a have to, then I think we'd be moving a whole lot more. God, throughout Scripture, chooses to partner with you and me, even though we're all messed up. Every one of us in this room is messed up in comparison to who our Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, by world standards, people might think you're great. You're great. It's not relevant anymore, is it? We're all messed up, but God chooses to partner with us. I want you to hear that today. God chooses to partner with you. That's why he wanted the fish and the loaves. God chooses to partner with us in his plan for his world. He used his prophets Teachers, evangelists, shepherds, 
administrators. God has used murderers, prostitutes, liars, and drunkards. Why? Why would he do that? Because he desires to partner with his people. How about this? God has used mothers and fathers. Train up your children the way that they should go. God has used husbands and wives as the spiritual head of the household. Lead your family. And then he says, wives, submit or work and honor and make this circle keep on spinning together in this marriage. I see some husbands like, yeah, submit, woman. Like, now he's preaching. Now, I, I did hear this just trying to follow the Spirit. There was a book that I read by John Maxwell several years ago. And in the, um, this is all free, nothing to do with the sermon. Um, and I know some people don't like these tangents, so I'm just going to follow the Spirit. Um, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Um, but this is important to a marriage because how much I love Macy. And what I realized is there was this time in my life where every spiritual gift that God had gave me, um, I was able to use against Macy in an argument. Seriously, it's, it's like, I know how to win this argument. I can use whatever it may be, just whatever gifting I had, um, I can debate well, I can find reason, I can use scripture and understanding, um, communication, I, I can use it. But John Maxwell's book, the one thing, and he, he had a little sidebar too that had nothing to do with anything that he was writing about. But he said, I was in an argument with my wife once. And when I was in this argument, she said, John, you may be winning the argument, but you're losing my heart. And that broke my heart. Because I said, how many times have I convinced myself that I'm right within this marriage and in this relationship, and I've convinced Macy and myself that I'm right? Because the heart is deceitful above all else. And I've convinced myself and I've convinced her that she's the problem because I've used every spiritual gift that God has given me to do that. When God gives you a gift, it's free. How you use that gift is up to you. So... Um, you know, when we talked about submitting, husbands, husbands, uh, lead your house and women submit to your spouse. Can't hear you. Yes, lay down your life. Exactly. So it just, it just broke my heart a little bit in this idea of submission and how people just lord over their spouse. It's not the way it's intended. Um, there's such a beautiful union and relationship that can go on there. Either way, back to, back to reality. You guys remember Saved by the Bell when Zach Morris would call timeouts? I think he did that, didn't he? Or a freeze. He just like freeze. Now we're back to reality. Um, God chooses to partner with us. He's used everyone, every kind of person. So why did he want the fish and the loaves? Because he wants to partner with us. So in this story, Jesus involved those around them. And he said, give me all that you have. 
Give me all that you have. That's what Jesus wants from you and I. That's how Jesus wants us to partner with him. He takes the little bit that we have and he uses it to do something great with it. See, the disciples within themselves, if, if they have five, um, five loaves and a couple fish, they get those. And without the presence of Jesus, what would they do with them? And they would be breaking it into crumbs. I mean, they break it and then they probably start doing this to just get little crumbs and then the fish. I mean, you, you couldn't even feed the 15,000 people. They didn't have enough to give. There was not enough to give there. And guess what? You and I don't have enough to give to Christ either. You don't. All of us fall short in being equipped to go out and do the work of Jesus Christ without him. Every one of us falls short to have what it needs. But what's important is even though I fall short, I offer whatever I have in the presence of Jesus and watch him take it and do big things. Now, what's a big thing that Jesus can do? It doesn't mean that we minister to 15,000, 20,000, 30,000. It doesn't mean we have a worldwide ministry that is um, known. It doesn't mean we become a famous church within the world or that we have, have to build an extension to this building. And here's the thing about bigger buildings, man. It just seems like the bigger the building gets, the more pride that comes into leaders. So I'm okay with the building staying this size. We'll just have multiple services. We can't do anything without Christ. What are you holding back from him? Because I know if I were to ask um, my dad in here this morning, or my mom, hey, you have five lo uh, loaves of bread and you have two fish. We don't know where food is coming from. This is how we're gonna eat this week. What do you think they're gonna do with that food? Are they going to give it away to someone else? See, the servant boy that had the food, this was his family's livelihood for the week. Why are you giving away your family's livelihood to Christ? It doesn't make sense, practically speaking, does it? See, God doesn't move practically. God moves by faith. God moves by us trusting him. So are you saying, Joey, are you telling me to forsake my family? Well, yes, kind of. Am I saying don't look out for them? No, I'm not. But what was taken here was someone's livelihood for the week and they trusted God with it. And it was just a little bit. It wasn't a lot. And many of us in this room say like, well, this person has this gift and that person has this gift and they're more qualified than me here, more qualified than me there. And then think about my testimony. Think about how I used to be in sin and how I used to do all these things. No way God would use me. Well, God is a God that tells people to get up and to walk and to never return to who they used to be. And then just to give them what you have. That's all that Jesus wanted in this moment is for you to give the little bit that you have. So this week, I want you to think about the little bit that you can give to God. 
God takes the little bit that we have and provides an abundance of fruit. The amount that we have doesn't keep God from moving. You hear that? The amount that you have doesn't keep God from moving. You have one woman in scripture who gives chump change and God received it as a blessing, didn't it? Didn't he, Jesus? Just chump change. And then you have another woman who took a year worth of perfume, broke it and wasted it at the feet of Jesus. Which one of those was greater to God? Neither. Why? Because it was them offering what they had. Offer what you have to Jesus this week. So the amount, the amount that matters is the amount that God calls you to give. And usually the amount that God calls us to give is everything that we have. And many of us during Sunday school last week said that they don't feel qualified to do God's work and that keeps them from doing it. We often say, who am I? Essentially, none of us outside of Christ has what it takes to appropriately do the work that God has called us to. But as Christ partners with us, um, and we offer the little bit that we have, we immediately become qualified. That's it. Simplified. Um, I'm going to pick on giving right now. Um, and if you come to this church, you realize we just never bring it up, or rarely, right? We just rarely ever bring up giving. Uh, we have the boxes at the back of the room, we have these baskets, and we just don't bring it up because we trust God. But there's times throughout the week that God has probably told some of you to give to the church. And you're like, but I can't. I got bills to pay. I can't because I got to get my coffee tomorrow. I can't because I got to put back into my retirement. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Just being honest, has anyone ever been there when it comes to giving to the church? I've been there. Participating church, thank you. See, the servant boy was put in that same position. And what he did is he said, God, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. See, the servant boy seemed to have more faith than the disciples, or at least Philip at this point. He said, take it all. Take it all. And we find ourselves in this weird spot of when we, when we tell God to take it all or to do whatever it takes, we think that he's going to like take something horrible from our life. One of the biggest fears of giving God everything is that we think that he's going to take our dog or take our cat or our turtle or our best friend or our car or our job, and he might. But the reason why we don't give up is because we're so afraid of giving or we're, we're so afraid of what he might do. Anyone ever been afraid of God in that manner? That if I give him my life, that he's going to steal something from me or do something to me, or he's going to amputate my leg. What a cruel picture of God, isn't it? Like, if that's, if that's who God was, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. Either way, 
what we see here in this scripture, don't hear prosperity. What, what we see here in this scripture is that when we trust God with everything and we give him everything, he's going to take it and he's going to do something far above greater than we ever could have imagined. Because not only were the 15,000 people fed, there was still an abundance left. God supplies the abundance when we give him everything that we have. God cares about our personal experience. So towards the bottom of the paragraph we're in, how many um, leftover baskets were there? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. What Jesus is also teaching throughout this story, it's like there's so many layers, isn't there? What Jesus is also teaching is this to his disciples very intentionally. You give me everything that you have and I will supply and meet every need that you have. See, having a Lamborghini is not a need that I have, right? Having an 8,000 square foot house is not a need that I have. Now, if I had 27 kids, I might need it. But I don't. So I don't need it. Jesus was teaching his disciples, trust me, watch me. Watch me provide for every need that you have. Really cool picture going on. When we give up whatever we have, God makes sure that we are supplied with everything that we need. Food, boldness, energy, resources, love, compassion. I tried to give God, please don't ever hear a superhero. Um, promise you this. One week I share stories and people are like, oh, Joey's just trying to make himself the superhero. And then Joey never shares stories. And then I hear, well, Joey's not, um, Joey's not even doing the same thing he's preaching us to know. Like, so then I get stuck. Like, well, what do I share? If I share the stories of what I'm doing, then everyone thinks I'm trying to be a superhero. If I don't, then people are like, you're not even doing what you're preaching. Oh, that's why you should be called to be a pastor. Right? Not pointing fingers, legitimate questions. Be called when you walk into ministry. So when I'm at the doctor, I'm trying to say, God, just use me however you want. I'm available to you. In the awkward position, I needed him to supply me with that boldness. I needed the boldness to talk to a highly educated man who can read effectively, who can comprehend appropriately. And you use a little Mechanicsburg boy to a highly educated man to preach the gospel. I needed boldness. Amen? God supplied it. When all I did is say, God, use me. That's all that I have right now is for you to use me. Use me. I'm available. Use me. And what I recognize is the greatest way to be used by God is when um, I'm present, when I'm available, and when I'm obedient. You guys should write those things down if you want to be used by God. Present, available, and obedient. See, present means when I'm at the doctor. 
I'm present in that moment. I'm there. I'm observing and I'm watching what God may be doing. Right? I'm here. God, I'm here at the urologist with you. I'm present. I'm not worried about Buckeye sports. I'm not worried about the food at home. I'm not worried about the meeting that I just have because I don't even know if I'm going to make it to that meeting. So I'm going to be present right here and I'm going to let tomorrow or the next meeting worry about itself. Because if God graces me with that next meeting and I'm carrying him with me, then everything's going to be okay. So I must be present. Present with Macy. Present with the church right now. So I'm present. I'm paying attention. I'm keeping my eyes out. Watching my six. I'm available. Now, if, 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 if I'm present, it's good to be present. It's good to be aware. But then I have to be available. So the next step for me is to then be available. Now, what does available mean? It means that if God tells me something, I'm willing to listen. Joey, here's the opportunity I've served right up to you. Will you take it? See, because I could be present and I could be just not available. God, I don't have time for you today. I'm not going to do it. Have to be available. God, I'm available to be used by my family today. I'm, I'm available to be at church all day. I'm available, I'm available, I'm available. And then the next thing is to be obedient. What good is it to be present and available if I'm not going to be obedient? We have to take then what God shares with us and then step into it. So what it looked like for me is I was present at the doctor. I was available as he was working on me. And then, um, then I had to be obedient when he started to speak false doctrine. So then I said, I totally disagree with you. We disagree. You see that? There's opportunities that God provides us each weekly for us to be present, available, and obedient with the little bit that we have. Just the little bit. And as we do that, he will provide the boldness, the energy, the resources, the love, the compassion, the food. As we actively step out and do his will, he provides everything that we need. Do you guys believe that today? Let's close our eyes. Father, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, we need you. I pray, Father, that as you test us and you reveal our hearts to us, that you would help us pass the test. That we would be a people that want to give you everything that we have. The little bit. God, I give you my emotions and my frustration and my fears and my doubts. And I trust you with them. God, we give you our wimpy paychecks and our time. We give them to you. Father, we give you our pride and our past. We say, use us. Partner. Thank you for wanting to partner with us. Father, give us boldness this week. Supply us with that, with that Father. We love you. And thank you, Father, for supplying for our greatest need.
in the, um, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that, Father. Bless us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.